So this morning we're going to look at one of two accounts in the end of chapter 5. And before we get into our text itself, I want us to be thinking about this. You know, when Jesus instructs us to pray, thy kingdom come, what does that mean? When Jesus stands before Pilate and says that my kingdom is not of this world, yet when he speaks to the Pharisees, he says it is in your midst. What does that mean? I want us to think about this morning that the kingdom come is unstained God taking on flesh and walking in and working in a stained world. The kingdom of God, perfect in every way, coming to a world that is imperfect in every way. Interjecting calm into chaos like we saw last week. The next two weeks we're going to see him interjecting healing into hurt and restoration into brokenness. And he had to come because of the fall. The fall of mankind that our first father, Adam, chose to listen to lies and to sin. And we still, in Adam, sin and will choose sin ten times out of ten. And from that fall, from that rejection of all things perfect in God's kingdom, a curse went out through the world. Through every grain of dirt and sand in the ground, every disease, everything around us that is imperfect is a reminder of the fall and a reminder that things are not as they should be. Jesus had to come and had to bring his kingdom here so that it would be, he would begin to restore what was broken. Just like there is nothing that is not touched by the fall, there is nothing that will not be touched by his restoration. Either in the refiner's fire being burnt up or being purified. And so we're going to look at two instances this week and next of that purification of Jesus taking something that was broke, something that is affected by the fall, and making it whole again. And we're going to see his, his compassion in our hurting and his uh, empathy in our weakness. How he takes on the hurt and the pain of his people. And this is a beautiful example of him coming as the suffering servant. Not high and mighty as a king on a horse in battle, but as a servant on a donkey who would, who would suffer and take on wounds to himself, take on pain and sin to himself so that our wounds, our pain, our sin would be relieved. And this is the beautiful and essential picture of the gospel. And this is what makes it so unique and so powerful. Is Christ's power over every effect of the fall. There is nothing that is affected by sin that Christ does not have authority over. And each of these instances in Mark's gospel shows us that. We see his power. In the last two accounts, we saw his power over the powerful. The powerful wind and waves that scared the disciples half to death. And the powerful man who was possessed by demons who could break chains with his own strength. His power over the powerful made them look weak. But these next two accounts, we're going to see him giving his power to the powerless. In this beautiful picture of their disease their death being made whole, being made new 
by Christ. And so this entire chapter is a chapter of hopeless causes. There's no hope for the demon-possessed man. There's no hope for the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. There's no hope for the little girl who's dead. Not just in their situation, but their status, as we're going to get into a little bit more this morning. Last week, we saw how everything about this man was, was unclean. Even in Greek society, he had no place in it. And this also, we're going to see, this is a chapter of imputation. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Imputation, taking affliction and death and giving wholeness and restoration. And so as we've seen uh, in the Gospel of Mark, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, he likes to do what uh, commentators very uh, astutely call a Markin sandwich. Meaning he starts one account, picks up in another, and then finishes with, with another. So you've got one miracle, and he's on the way to help the daughter of the synagogue ruler, and then another miracle comes up, and, and then he focuses on the second one and concludes the, the first. So that's what we're going to do. We're actually going to handle the second miracle first, and then we're going, next week we're going to look at the first miracle and the introduction and the conclusion of this entire section, verses 21 to 43. Put another way, we're going to take the Oreo, take the cookies off both sides, we're going to eat the uh, cream out, out of the middle, and we'll come back to the cookies next week. It'll be the longest time an Oreo has last, lasted ever, especially in my sight. So um, that's how we're going to approach this. We're going to deal with the cream this week and cookies next week. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and imploring him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well and live, made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we exalt your name, that it would be hallowed in all the earth, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. And that is only possible because your kingdom came and took on flesh, Emmanuel walking among us. Your will can only be done because your spirit transforms people to be obedient. Lord, we pray for your sovereign hand over all things. We trust you from our nation to our very lives. And we praise you 
that like this woman, so many of us are gone from nothing. Nothing of our own to being whole and in peace and reconciled to our Savior. Thank you that you are God who reconciles and redeems. A God whose blood is pure and perfect while ours is stained and unclean. That you take what is broken and make it whole, what is hurting and heal it. And that you have given us the gift of faith so that we may trust in you and follow you all of our days. We praise you as your, your people in service to our God. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get into this, I want to pull out a few observations between this week and next week. So you see, this is part one of part two. And so the first thing I want you to see is this is a great juxtaposition of two things that should not go together. So you've got um, the most revered in Jewish society, the ruler of the synagogue and his daughter, and this woman who is most ostracized in society. We're going to get into that a little bit more. So a high position and a very, very low position. There's a lot of similarities between these. Because both a menstruating woman and a dead body would be unclean for any Jew to come in contact with. This is going to continue our theme in chapter 5 of being unclean. Remember last week, or the last two weeks, all the uncleanly things that, or if that's even a word, the things that were unclean in this uh, man who's possessed by demons. The tombs, and the blood, and the demons, and the Gentile land, and all that. There's more impurity that we're having to deal with. In both of these, someone falls down on their face in submission and recognition of Jesus. In both of these, these are women who are healed by a touch from Jesus. And in both instances, they're called daughters made whole by faith. So I want to I dive right in. So I want you to think about the parallels, but we're going to focus on miracle number two, and then we'll deal with the rest next week. So let's look at this woman's situation, which we see her affliction. Verse 25, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. These verses describe a long, arduous, painful, expensive, and shameful process. She suffered much, her own pain for twelve years, and in the original, it's th- there's, she suffered under physicians too. She didn't go in and get an x-ray. She didn't take a, a blood test. Who knows what kind of archaic processes they had to, she had to go through. Who knows how much poking and, and, and prodding and things that she had to go through and spent all her money and now she's broke. This woman is to be pitied. Our hearts are to go out for her. This is, there's nothing light about her affliction. She's broke. She is hurting And she's getting worse. But probably what is even more worse is the shame that she would feel in her society. She would be completely ostracized. And I want you to see why. Leviticus 15 tells us that any woman in her monthly cycle for seven days is unclean. And in that, anything she touched, anything she sat on, anything she slept on was also unclean. Anyone who came into contact with her 
must also be cleansed and purified for seven days before they could go into the temple. So think about this. If you are a Jew, every part of your life revolves around temple worship. They are, they are a very collective people. It's not, they're not rugged individualists like us. Women typically did not own property and typically did not have rights outside of a husband or family. And this woman was shut out from all that for 12 years. No one could touch her because then they would be unclean. So no comfort, no human contact for 12 years in addition to this pain. This is the, 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 the undercurrent. Even her being in this crowd, the, the thronged crowd, it means to press up against, that was breaking the law. Anyone who came into contact, or unwillingly, contact with her unwillingly could not go into the temple. This, and I, I want you to get a sense of this because we can read through this and say, okay, it sounds bad, but it's way worse than anything that we hear in our Western ears. In that culture, it was the worst. And, and, and it seems extreme. You're like, Why? Why would God require this of a woman every, every month and then this woman be subjected to it? Because I want to deal with blood for a moment. Because blood has important symbolism. Blood is one of the rare things in Scripture that at the same time symbolizes life and death. And so it's, what's helpful to understand is when blood is in your body, it is life. As soon as it leaves your body, it is death. And so this is how it's seen. Because first, it, it signifies life. As long as blood is in your veins, you are alive. That's how we know we're alive. We are flesh and blood. Blood pumping through veins and arteries, going through flesh. You are alive. That's why the term lifeblood comes up often in Scripture. And it's especially focused on, on humanity. Lifeblood, flesh and blood. That's how we know that, the, that we're human. So it is synonymous with life in a positive way. But it's also synonymous with death. Because as soon as your blood leaves your body, you are reminded that you are mortal. That you are frail. You are reminded that this blood reminds me that as soon as it leaves my body, I am closer to death. Every time. Reminds us that our life is short. But also, of sin and guilt. The phrase, you have blood on your hands, reminds you that sin is death, and it it leads to death. And blood coming out is not a good thing. And so any type of blood would make you you unclean in that that culture. And that's why sacrifices are needed. Because the reminder of your sin makes you think about your blood that is on your own hands, that you deserve to die, and only by a covering of new life, a spotless lamb, a blemish free sacrifice can good blood spotless blood cover what is impure and what is wicked that's why sacrifices are needed life blood must be given to cover tainted blood and all of our blood is tainted with sin coming from adam coming from the fall down to the very things that pump through our veins it's full of sin we are sinful in our blood so much so isaiah tells us that we are so unclean our sin it makes us as a menstrual rag the most unclean thing in Jewish culture, that's where we are in our sin. Every lie you've ever told, every lustful thought, every greedy impulse makes you completely unclean in the eyes of God. And this woman was uncleanliness personified, walking around every day with this shame. 
This is terrible news. But as we think about blood, that is why the blood of Jesus is so essential. That is why the spotless lamb cannot be separated from our faith. If Jesus is not the perfect sacrifice for sin, if his blood is not untainted, we have no hope because our blood is so putrid. The blood of the spotless lamb being perfect without spot or blemish. This is so important. This is central to the book of Hebrews that we're studying. Like us, in every way yet without sin. A blood that can be the perfect and final sacrifice. This is why what we believe about Jesus is so important. So what we believe about his birth is so important. He's the only man in history whose blood is not tainted by the fall. Why? Because he was born of a woman, but born of the Holy Spirit. All of the men since Adam who contribute their seed to the woman are passing on sin from generation to generation to generation, except for one. So that he was not affected by the fall, and only his blood can give the final sacrifice and final covering for our own death that pumps within our heart. This is why the the message of blood was so pertinent to her situation, but so powerful for us and in the gospel. So when you see blood in the scriptures, don't just pass over it. Maybe a pun intended there. But think about it. So here's the woman's situation. Here's her affliction. And then I love her action, which comes up. She, verse 27, had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Look at the beautiful, this natural process of of a disciple. She, look at the actions here. She hears. She believes the good news about him. She listens and she acts on it. She hears and and then she came. She didn't just listen. She was a hearer and she was also a doer. She put feet to her beliefs. She sought him out. She responds in her face. She left behind all her other hope and everything else. I have to find this Jesus. If what I've heard about him is true, I must seek him out. She heard, she came, and then she reached out and touched. And in theology, we think about faith is grabbing a hold of what God has offered. He draws her. She reaches out and touches it, and in this moment, everything changes for her, and we'll get there in just a second. But she trusts. She hears, she comes, and she trusts. If I touch Jesus, something is going to happen. I I can be made well. And this is what is required of each one of us. We hear the gospel message. We come, and we reach out to him. And if you know this message, if you have heard the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, and you come to him and you reach out to him in faith, you know that you are restored. You have the confidence that this this woman has. But how many people, like the great contrast of the faceless crowd that is pressing up on him, How many people come to church will flood in week after week, or maybe not as much anymore, but still happens? Yeah, we're going to surround Jesus. This is great. I'm I'm following Jesus. 
but how many come in, in faith reaching out to touch him? Or how many just walk alongside him going through the motions as if they really know him but never respond in faith? I see this woman as a great example of faith as this unfolds a little bit more. We get a little insight into the conversation in her head. I don't know how Mark knows what was going on in her head, but he does. The Holy Spirit reveals it to him. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. Think about this woman who has gone through everything that the medical profession has to offer in her day, but knows, if I touch him, I will be made well. She says this in confidence. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. There's no doubting in this woman. This is what faith looks like. And I love this picture of her hearing this and and going and acting on it. But how many of us are guilty of the same thing she was? Exhausting every effort, knocking on every door, spending every dollar we can and everything else, and then when nothing else works, I guess I should go see what this Jesus guy is all about. How many of us are still doing that? Even believers are doing that with the, the, the pain in your heart. The hurt and the disappointment and the anger that you have of trying everything else and going to Jesus last. Now there is healing and there is restoration in Him, but do we go to Him first or do we go through every system and power of man first only for them to fail us again and again and again, just like every physician in her life, because all the other physicians fell flat until she went to the great physician. Now, doctors are good, and they, pref- and they are necessary in our society. I'm not saying don't go to the doctor. But if your hope and your trust are in the systems of, of, of man, you may be healed for a moment. But as we're going to see, that's not the point for us, and that's not the point for this woman either. And so there's one more thing I want to bring up. There's an interesting word here in verse 28. If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. So it's a very common word in Greek, and a lot of you Greek students would know, sozo. It has a wide-ranging meaning. Either I heal, I save, or or I deliver. And depending on the context, you know what this this word means. So sozo, it's the, the root of where we get soteriology, or the study of salvation, or just our concept of salvation comes from this. But in this instance, it, uh, it's translated made well, and most translations do that. Because it, it can also mean healed. But here it means something more than healed. It's not just healed. And Mark's getting at something, because we're going to see the same word in verse 29 and verse 34. And before you think I'm just getting nerdy here for, for no reason, there is something to this. Because this concept of being made well, being, being made whole, being, being healed is, is central to this, this passage, in, but central to understanding the gospel. And so hold on to that, and I'll address it as we get there. Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and he felt in her body, and she felt in her body that she was healed, so was again here, in her disease. So this word for disease, it means torment. It means scourging. It means to be hit with whips. Every moment of this woman's life was like being whipped, was like being tormented. Her disease was such a a, a scourge on her, and immediately it's gone. And so, what's, how did this come about? 
Was it just simply that his, his clothes or something miraculous about them that she just reached out and touched him? If so, then all of the fragments that are in Catholic churches across the globe can still heal, heal today. Is there something in his, his clothes or is it something more than that? And I want us to think about it. Was, it. was it that she touched Jesus? Or how she touched Jesus? This is what many of these faith healers distort. All of these faith healers distort. Not that they touched Jesus. Not that there's healing in that, but, but how? And in that moment, her entire life changed. Just being touched by him. The shame, the guilt, the pain, gone immediately. Just like the demoniac who's tormented for we don't know how long and then immediately is made whole in Christ. Her blood dried up. Now, it's not always this extreme. These are the most extreme examples. I'm sure there were, there were many more. John tells us that if we, we could not write down everything Jesus did. But this is to show an example for us. Every time that Jesus touches someone or someone touches him in faith, they touch him and he in turn touches them. It is just like this. It is a healing. It is a restoration. It is a making well. It is making them clean. Purifying people for himself. Because he is pure. He is spotless. And this unclean woman has no part in him while she is unclean, but he makes her clean. He purifies her. Sheree, remind me this morning that the, the ladies in their study this afternoon are looking at purity. And purity has a lot of layers to it. But most importantly, our God is pure and he is spotless and he is blameless and he requires a people who are spotless and blameless for him. Now through his blood, we, 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 we have that, that covering, but in our, in our sin, we need to sanctify and, and, and purify ourselves as we grow in Christ. So I encourage you ladies, this is a good thing for men and women, but for women especially as they walk through Titus 2, what does it look like to be to be pure and to be spotless and to be obedient. And if you're, uh, if you're a woman, you'd like to come and you have not read the chapter or just are getting in late, that's fine. Uh, so if you're, and people ask me this a lot, so it's a good time to address it. So if you're new to the church or you're asking, you know, what does discipleship look like? What does accountability look like? Our men and women study the same way. We'll go through a book together and we'll all meet together. And then we all get into smaller groups where we can encourage one another and, and, and pray for one another and walk through things through one another in a Titus 2 model. And so, ladies, if you want to be a part of that, you can do that this afternoon at 2 o'clock. You've got just enough time to go get lunch uh, and, and come back. But looking at your purity in Christ and what he desires of you. So, moving on. So this is what happens in her, and now we get kind of Jesus' perception in all this. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Perceived in himself. No one had to tell him. He didn't even feel it. She only touched his garment. It shows his divine intuition looking into what was going on, on here. He, but he perceives that power is going out. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. So what exactly is going on here? What does it mean that his power is going out from him? Because many people touched him. Many people brushed up against him. They were, they were thronging around him. They were pressing up against him. But there's something different about this one. Power went out in this instance. It's not just touching Jesus. It's touching Jesus, as we're going to see, in faith. 
And so what we're going to see is a, is a transference of power, or what we call theologically an imputation. An imputation is taking from one account and giving to another. Taking an account that has a surplus, his power, and giving to an account that has a deficit, her powerlessness. By reaching out to Jesus in faith, she receives from his account. And that's why imputation is so central to the gospel. Because our account is bankrupt. It has nothing to offer. Not just NSF. No funds. Nothing. And he gives his power to the powerless. Takes on their affliction. And this central theme in the gospel of the powerful God taking on flesh that the powerful might be restored. And the sinful man giving their sins to Almighty God that they might be righteous is amazing. We see a glimpse of this here, and it happens in faith. A small shadow of what we will see on the cross, and we'll unfold that in the last verse in just a moment. But always, the disciples have to be here for comic relief. I love that the, the disciples' humanity is never in doubt. We know exactly where they stand. And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Oh, man. Oh, disciples, you of little faith. Like, come on, Jesus. If we can't see it, we know you can't see it. I mean, come on, Jesus. How, how can this even happen? We are right here. There can't be anything beyond what we see. But we do the same thing. We're no different. How often do we assume that if we can't see it, it can't happen, or it isn't there? Well, Jesus, I don't see it. I don't see a way out here, so there, there, there must be no way out. There, there must be no hope because I don't have any hope. There must be no answer because I don't have an answer. And I think the disciples are here, and they are here, for our example, to remind us of how often we do this, to remind us of, of how foolish this looks in light of the whole picture. We don't always get the whole picture. But here we do. We know the woman's condition. We know her faith. We know Jesus' perception. And yet we get their response at the same time. Criticizing Jesus. And every time, they are embarrassed in it. So, good lesson for us as we go through this. So he asks, who, who touched me? The disciples respond, and then Jesus does something interesting. And he looked around to see who had done it. He looked around. This is, a, this is a very intent scanning of the audience. Everyone who's, who's around him. And in a crowd, Jesus knows and looks for the one with true faith. I love this. This is how he sees his own. Some of you wrestle with the doctrine of election. Like, how do I know what's this person saved or not? It's not up for you to know, but Jesus does. This is the shepherd who knows his sheep and a sheep who know his voice. And in a crowd of people where the, where the disciples can't tell sheep from goats, he scans to find the sheep. He scans to find the one with true faith and she is not hidden from him. Reminds me of where we were in Hebrews 4.13. I'm going to look at this twice because it's very pertinent. It'll be up on the screen quickly. And no creature... This is speaking of the Word of God. Jesus is the Word made flesh, and no creature is hidden from His sight. 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to who we must give an account. Imagine that. In every crowd, in Times Square, every soccer game, every massive crowd, no one is hidden. No one can hide. That, as we were talking about on Wednesday night, is terrifying if your identity is still in your sin and you are apart from Christ. You cannot hide. But if you are in Christ, that is so encouraging. There is nowhere you can go. He knows exactly where you are. He will never leave you. You will never be out of his sight. Luke tells us at this time she realizes that she's not hidden. She realizes that she's been exposed. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. So it's strange that she thought a touch of his clothes was powerful enough to heal her, but he wasn't powerful enough to figure it out. Yeah, that's how our minds work sometimes. Nonetheless, this is a very honorable woman. Because many people, they got from Jesus what they wanted and they left. She could have taken her healing and, and, and gone. She could have blended into the crowd and gone back to her life, now, now cleansed and restored. But what does she do? When she knows, she came again. I want to look at these further signs of faith. This is the same woman who hears, who comes, and who touches. Now she comes, fears, falls down, and she tells the truth. She came to him in fear, in right reverence. This is a good thing, in trembling. She does not address Jesus lightly. She realizes she felt within herself the power that changed her. She was terrified, but she knew she must come. She knew she must fall before him, and she fell down. This appropriate posture of submission and recognition. Giving glory to the one who, who restored her. How could I even look you in the eye? I have no part to even gaze in your face. I must fall down before you. I am so unclean and I am so unworthy. This is the appropriate posture of a disciple. And then another great aspect of a disciple. And she told him the whole truth. Just like Hebrews 4.13, nothing hidden, nothing that is not exposed. She told him the whole truth. I've been bleeding for 12 years. I'm broke. My family can't even touch me. I can't even go in my own home. I can't go in my own bed. I have nothing. But now after one touch from you, I am whole. I am made new. She gets to tell him what happened, but also testify of that healing. And so what a great reminder that we can tell him the whole truth. That he knows, she knows he knows. But the beautiful restorative process of telling him, look at who I was. I was unclean, you made me clean. I had nothing, you've given me wholeness again. I've been broken. But do we do it enough? Do we do it enough? Do we, do we, do we confess to God all of our brokenness? all the ways where we need healing, where we need restoration, where we have gone to other doctors on other things, doctors quote-unquote, before coming to the great physician. Do we thank him enough? Thank you for what you've done in me. Thank you for bringing me through this. 
Thank you for giving me life in you. And he gives her the best response anyone will ever hear. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This word daughter is such an endearing term. It shows his compassion toward her. I want to bring one passage to your mind because Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, when his heart is breaking for his own people, there's one term he uses again and again and again, daughter, daughter, daughter. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 8. It will be on the screen as well. Look at the language, the prayer of Jeremiah that we see fulfilled in this woman. Jeremiah 8, starting in verse 18. He says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and the breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me, to, provoked me to anger with carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Why then is the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Is there no physician here? His people are so sick. And it isn't physical. It is, it is idolatrous. It is wicked hearts. Their health needs restoration. Jesus is the restorer of this woman's health. But then it goes into his anguish and his compassion in verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah identifies himself with his people using a term of compassion and endearment. Israel is like my daughter. My heart hurts because they hurt. Jesus uses that in that way, but he uses it in a more significant way. It shows his relation to her. He calls her daughter. Speaking of her being far off and now brought into his home, the, the, the familial term, it marks her faith and it proves her adoption. You are truly a daughter of Israel. You are truly a daughter of the king. And this is his kingdom come. I have just changed your identity. I have given you a name that will not wear out. I have given you a family. I have given you an inheritance. You are my daughter because of your faith. And we'll get there in just a second. So remember I mentioned Sozo earlier. I'm going to wrap this up here. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Sozo again. Salvation, healing, deliverance. But notice that it encompasses both peace and and healed your and healing. The the colon here I think is necessary in the ESV. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Go in peace, shalom, wholeness of life, lacking nothing. Go be complete. Be healed. Here, Mark uses a more common word for healing, no longer using sozo. This means to be sound, to be made whole. 
go in peace of life and wholeness of flesh. Now, because of the one word we have not addressed yet, faith. Now, because of faith, she has wholeness of life and wholeness of body. Sozo is just an ordinary word until you attach it with faith. Then it becomes true salvation. Daughter, your faith has made you well. That is the most important word in this entire passage. Because physical healing was not the point. If so, Mark would not have recorded this exchange. In every instance, it is the heart. It is true salvation. It is true life in Christ that is the point. She is saved by her faith in Christ, not by the works of touching his garment. But that act itself was an act of faith and therefore justified her, made her truly well, made her righteous in Christ. And so, uh, it's fitting yesterday, Reformation Day. I want to kind of land and just spend a couple moments on justification by faith. Sola fide. By faith alone we are saved. This doctrine sets us apart from every other religion and every other belief system falsely attaching themselves to Christianity. Anyone else who tells you you must add to your faith or your faith in the works of Christ is enough, your works need to be added to it, is a false gospel. It wasn't her touch that made her well. It was her faith that made her well. I want to spend a couple moments in Romans 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 3. Romans is Paul's gospel magnum opus. And chapter 3 is the great transition from the beginning where none of you search after me, none of you are good, all of you are wicked, to the beautiful transition in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Altogether, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Excuse me, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what goes on in this woman. This is what sola fide means. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are no different than this woman apart from Christ. We are completely unclean, as Isaiah says. There is nothing pure within us. But through faith in Christ, we get His righteousness. The spotless Lamb, the perfect God. For there is no distinction. Don't think you're above this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you are justified by His grace as a gift, you who believe, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who... God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. All this comes together as we look at Romans 3. Our blood marred by sin. His blood, perfect in righteousness, received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. That is the greatest gift to those who believe. Our sins passed over. As in the Passover of Israel, we do not receive death because our, we are covered by blood. But also, not just sins passed over, but righteousness given. The great exchange. Our sins to Him. His righteousness to us. Received by faith. Verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just the perfect one, the spotless lamb, and the justifier, the, the sacrifice himself of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
this woman's life up to this point shows us the gospel. Broken, no hope, marred and scarred. And this is God's answer to the curse. God's answer to sin and death and the fall. Justification by faith. Our faith in the one who can heal, our faith in the one who can restore. And everyone who believes in him has been given the name daughter, son. Has been given an inheritance, has been united with Christ, been given his righteousness. There is no message on the planet that compares with that. There is no message where the dead are made alive, the unclean are made clean. Perfect. Because of the perfect one. And so in conclusion, her story is our story. And I want to recount the gospel from where we went. We began with the fall. Began with everything being marred by sin. All of us falling short. All of us being in the dominion of death. All of us being like this woman without hope. No power on earth can save us. It was her blood that condemned her. But it is blood that saves her. And every time we see blood and we see death, we are reminded that we need new blood. We need a complete transfusion. We need to be emptied of our blood and covered with His. And by believing that His blood can heal us, then our faith becomes our justification. His power to overcome sin and death, His righteousness given to us in faith. And out of that comes our adoption, brought into the family, personally called by the Savior, brother, sister, called by the Father, son, daughter. Jesus restores, Jesus heals. There is no better message before we approach the communion table than this. So I want to give you a few moments in your seats to consider these words If you are in Christ, this is the greatest news that you should meditate on and thank Him for every day. If you are not, consider your sin, consider your brokenness, consider yourself like this woman. But you are not without hope as she was not without hope. I'll give you a few moments in your seats. Any unconfessed sins before we come to this table in unity.